Hey, Dog Speak Geeks. Do you ever feel frustrated? Well, your dog does. Frustration occurs when an animal is interrupted in reaching their goals. Unfortunately, this occurs all too often in the modern world when a dog's goals do not align with those of their human companion. This can be a source of distress for both you and your dog, but it can also lead to the development of problem behaviors and can damage the relationship that you have with your dog. But we have answers for you. Join us for a two-day in-person seminar October 5th and 6th with instruction by Daniel Shaw. Daniel Shaw is an animal behaviorist with a background in animal behavior, psychology, and neuroscience. He will be talking about what frustration is and how it can be identified, the difficulty of conventional approaches in resolving frustration, what influences the value of rewards, as well as supporting frustrated dogs and building frustration tolerance. You can buy early bird tickets now until August the 5th, and be sure that you join us for our pre-seminar social Friday evening where you can meet Daniel and the Dog Speak team. We look forward to seeing you October 5th and 6th in Nashville, Tennessee for the Neuroscience of Resolving Frustration in Dogs seminar. Hey, Dog Speak Geeks, super excited to have Kim Brophy back on the podcast this week. Kim, tell everybody about yourself. We have a lot of new listeners. They may not have listened to the last episode you and I did, but uh, so tell everybody about yourself. Okay, well, I am a super dog nerd, um, and uh, anyone who's listened to me on any kind of a platform knows that. Like, I get more excited geeking out about dogs than anything. Um, and so I have a background in applied ethology. And I am a dog behavior consultant and trainer um, who has a practice here in the Asheville, North Carolina area. Um, but mostly these days, we're doing a lot of online education with our Legs Applied Ethology Family Dog Mediation Pro course that you've taken. Um, and then The Dog's Truth, which is a public facing version of the same content boiled down into a nice one hour nutshell. <laughs> um, and we've got a bunch of other exciting things in the works and, and just really cool to see like what's happening in the industry through all this collaboration and like new projects that are occurring and stuff. So fun times. It really has. You've, you've really opened and truly the dog door. It's like you've opened the door to all this beautiful thinking that many of us have had for the years, but never a platform, never a, a, a community. You know, it was always like we were the black sheep of the family Yeah. <laughs> when, when we're thinking about things more like, you know, raising our dogs, not overly training, not using aversives, seeing them as, as individuals and not putting them in a box. And you've just done such a beautiful job at bringing everybody together and collaborating. And I am so super excited just in the past few years, getting an opportunity to meet people that are the same mindset because locally mm, there's not that many. Well, I think it's been that fun for all of us. Cause for me, I've felt just as alone in this mm -hmm. industry, as long as I've been in it with the, the way that I was approaching things and the, the thinking and the kind of integration of ideas and different scientific disciplines. And then um, <clears throat> kind of going to conferences and feeling like, try to talk to people about it. And you're like way out on this limb from the mainstream conversation, which has been so operant focused and mm -hmm. so task focused. Like I like how, you know, Andrew Hale talks about that difference between task and care, you know, like it's been all about this performance and the idea of obedience. And um, now it's really shifting to integrate that lens of applied ethology to understand that as captive and domesticated animals, they're dependent on us to provide for their welfare and that behavior problems, which we've traditionally talked about as like dog misbehavior or out of attitude yeah. problems or lack of training or whatever, we're realizing, wait a minute, those behavior problems are actually symptomatic of welfare issues. And it's moving that conversational ball down the court. And it's just so, so exciting and amazing to connect with people like you and all these awesome students in the group. Um, I'm learning so much every day from all those conversations and collaborations. And I feel like we are literally evolving together. Yeah. And I'm so excited for December uh, coming to Asheville. The legs are up, staying for the uh, rainbow resilience. <laughs> awesome. Um, super excited. Um, I, it's been a while since I've gotten to go to a, to a 
conference or a seminar. So I'm so excited about getting to get out and, and meet you finally in person. Right. Um, and and Daniel, who he and I recorded a couple of weeks ago. Oh, he's amazing. Uh, oh, he was fantastic. We, I think we were all over the place on spay and neuter. Yeah. And I just kept throwing things. And he's like, well, I don't know. Cause I'm like, Hey, why can't we give spay dogs estrogen? Why can't we let their hormones <laughs> settled out? I'm on estrogen now, you know, do yeah. they get hot flashes? Are they, you know, so it's, <laughs> Yeah. All of these things were coming out with my, with the, my current hysterectomy recovery. And um, we had such a good time talking and just felt so good because I just remember going to seminars and workshops before everybody wanted to talk very scientifically. And even though I have that knowledge, I never like to talk scientifically because that's not how I would talk to my clients. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I would feel almost inadequate if I couldn't throw out that jargon right? That, mm -hmm. that people want to throw out to be like, well, do you really know that? Do you know the operants? And, and, you know, and it was, it was just a little bit like, that's not really kind of where my thought process is going. I want to make things more just natural, normal for life, even though I was working my dogs in a very task oriented way. And, mm -hmm. um, but I didn't necessarily do that with my clients. Um, as probably I was doing it more than I am now. Mm -hmm. And now trying to get clients to change that thought process to this task-oriented, robotic, everything is great um, thought process to look, what is, what do we need the dog to know to make life great for you guys as a, as a family, right? right? What is important there? And, you know, you and I have had kind of similar now because we both have newer dogs. Mm -hmm. We've had obviously dogs in the past. Um, my dogs in the past, I've had Rottweilers for mm -hmm. the last 20 years. And this is the first time without one. Um, I, I'm trying my best to go without one, but I think I'm going to have to give in. <laughs> I'm maybe bringing one to Asheville. Um, with me. <laughs> so I'm already kind of looking, but um, I, I worked them in search and rescue and human remains detection. So it was a very task oriented, but yet it was still a think for yourself, you know, better than me, we have to work together as a group, but I also can't, you can't look like an ass in front of the police. You can't look like an ass in front of the media that constantly wants to follow you. Right. It's like I, I gave my dog Gaelic commands so that I could use those in front of the media. So no one would know if my dog was not listening <laughs> because I didn't, because I know if they're not listening, it's more than likely they know better. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you have the public looking at you as a professional, they're like, oh, you told your dog to come and they didn't come. And I'm like, yeah, right. my dog's on scent right now looking for what we're looking for. Right. You know, and, and I think that, so my thought process was always work, work, work. And then I was like, my new dog, I didn't go with a Roddy because I didn't have, I didn't have the time. And I wanted something smaller to cuddle with. And God, I didn't get the cuddle thing, but <laughs> I, I thought I'm going to do this a little differently because it was after I took your legs and, and this whole kind of beyond the operant conversation kind of started and kind of sucked me into everything. And I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. And I thought I just didn't, I didn't have the, the energy to work with a new dog and I didn't want a dog with trauma. I got one with trauma because oh. I, I was like, I just don't have time for my mm -hmm. own for that. So I ended up getting one and, and yes, I did it completely differently and I'll get into kind of what he is and we can talk more about that. But you've, you kind of went the different route too with, you said the last two, but I'm very familiar with this last one with Monk. Yeah. So Got to tell everybody about Monk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and, and you'll get such a like more filled in story than even, you know, Facebook is updated with right now because he is like full tilt adolescent male. And it's been so interesting what has transpired in the last month and the things that I've learned that I wasn't expecting really, really fascinating. But so Monk is a great Pyrenees golden retriever mix. He's mostly great Pyrenees. So he's 87% or 83% Great Pyrenees and 17% Golden. Um, and he is uh, well over 100 pounds at just 11 months. Um, and with the growth charts, that means he's looking like 175-ish pounds. Wow. Is he's be. So he is huge. 
Um, and he is intact. So to kind of touch on your neutering, you know, conversation <laughs> with Daniel Shaw, both because he's a giant breed and I really need the benefit of that, um, uh, you know, intact kind of hormone contribution to the growth plates and, you know, his, his development orthopedically and all that, but also for all the behavioral reasons you talked about with Daniel, you know, the new thinking is kind of that there are a lot of benefits that we didn't know about mm -hmm. before. Um, but Monk, as everyone knows on Facebook, has been a bit of a unicorn um, and and also not just into kind of who he is. I mean, he is a lovely dog, just his his nature. I plucked him out of a cow pasture, found him on Craigslist, everything you're not supposed to do. But I know a good puppy when I see one. And it was more that I got like um, completely scammed online. So everyone PSA, there's like really impressive puppy scams online that for people who've been in the industry for 20 years, I still got completely taken by like whole wow. websites. They talk to you. They send you videos and pictures. They know the right answers to the questions you ask. It was really terrifying. So I lost 500 bucks. I was in a bad mood and I wanted some puppy breath. <laughs> and uh, so me and my daughter were like, Craigslist, okay, let's go look at a litter of puppies. And I was like, so what are the chances, right, that this amazing puppy is there? But um, so we couldn't say no to him. So we brought him home and um, we got to meet the parents and some siblings from a previous litter and stuff. So I felt great about that. Um, and it's been a real adventure integrating him into my family and my lifestyle as a professional at this point with the whole legs model and this kind of hacky lens that we are using in our community and approach that I've used for a long time with clients, but have been increasingly confident about just leaning into that and moving away from the kind of traditional training operant model. Um, and so long short of it is, is that I have not done any formal training with Monk at all. And he's the first dog that I have done this with deliberately um, because my experience has increasingly been. So the last dog, you know, before him being seven years old, a Pyrenees Newfoundland mix, um, I did very little training with her, very little formal training. And for anyone who knows Pyrenees, they're really not interested in obedience and like, like the desire to please whatever the heck that is that people talk about. But basically that right. orientation towards like working for a human that we selected for with gun dogs and herding dogs and working breeds. Yeah. It's not really there in the great Pyrenees. Right. Um, they, they're developing <laughs> like live in a pasture with the livestock by themselves, making their own decisions. Thank you very much. Um, be completely kind to humans. Um, they're not bred to be human aggressive, but they're bred to be protective of, of their social group. So um, <clears throat> she taught me a lot. It was a very humbling experience bringing the first one into the house. And so she kind of told me who she was and I just met her there. So I moved away from a lot of the um, operant stuff, even more so at that time and found new ways of communicating that were building on things I had done before, but again, really leaning into them more. So, you know, with Monk, the emphasis has been on communication, boundaries, agreements, clarity, um, pattern building, like we talk about so much in the course. Um, and what's been so remarkable for me, I mean, it's, it's not that they're not learning. So I just want to clarify that. Like people want to split hairs about like what training is and what training is. And many would look at what I'm doing and be like, of course, you're training them. But when I say that I'm not training them, I'm not using um, additional motivators outside the main math of why any organism does behavior to begin with. So there's in, in basic animal behavior, the world over every species, there's a condition that then inspires an action in the case of if they decide to take an action um, towards a particular consequence that they are after, right? To avoid or acquire or whatever. And so, um, you know, in our industry, we talk about that as the pre-MAC principle. Like a lot of people think about it that way, but even that we've managed to overcomplicate and be like, you take yep. a less likely behavior and you make it a contingency for, <laughs> you know, a likely behavior. And people are like, what? Like, what? basically, just want to say, you want to effectively use the thing that they're interested in in that moment as that motivator. You stick within that primary motivation and you make like appropriate or acceptable in the ground rules of your family environment behaviors work effectively towards those ends. And then the behaviors that are not appropriate or not functional in the environment that you can't support not work. Um, and so I'm very much teaching. So I want to make sure I'm like, I'm not a fan of unparenting. Right. Okay? right. I am not a fan of let the kids do whatever and never say no to them. No, no, no. That's no. not remotely what I'm saying. Um, ask my kids. They'll tell you I say no. Right. Um, but what I am a fan about 
are a fan of um, is, is getting some of that arbitrary stuff out of it. So when I say I haven't done that, what I mean is I haven't introduced other motivators that I have traditionally used, you know, for years in the past, like treats and stuff like that, toys, um, in order to motivate or change behavior, right? I stick with whatever that goal is in the moment for him and why the behavior is happening in the first place. Um, and then in addition, I haven't had to use any kind of tools, which has been really interesting other than management. So it's like, I think some people think their choices are the carrot or the stick. Yeah. And my whole emphasis is you don't really need carrots or sticks because what you can do is work with that primary math of behaviors. So um, we build language around it. We build boundaries, we build patterns, we build agreements and um, contracts, if you will, about different kinds of conditions. Um, and he is the most delightful adolescent dog. And the things that have popped up, which we'll get into in a minute, because that's oh, yeah. too long of a thing to get into now. But the things that have popped up are very much textbook what I would have expected of an adolescent male livestock guardian dog. So no curveballs. Um, uh, and, and very appropriate kinds of, uh, behaviors and we're navigating them quite well. So, um, I'm so curious to hear you share about what your experience has been too. I think that first, I know that the amount of, of listeners jaws that probably dropped when they heard that, when you said the sentence, I've done no formal training after you said he's going to be 175, you know, 75 pounds, they're all thinking, oh my God, how are you controlling this dog? And that is the thing is so many people are thinking they have to train, train, train to have control right? instead of developing a relationship right? and have that control. Right. Because that's right? the thing is like, he doesn't pull on leash, right? So that's what would surprise people is, wait a minute, how do you have a hundred and currently five to 10 pound dog who's an adolescent, who's intact, that you can take out in public to the veterinary hospital and he acts like a gentleman. He doesn't jump on people. He doesn't pull on the leash. He doesn't, you know, randomly try to grab things off of counters and, you know, stuff like that at the vet hospital. He's lovely. And none of that was done with what we think of as like, what's your leash training technique, right? Right. Um, and so that's the fascinating thing about it is that, that for me, having had that education in applied ethology, but then immediately going into the world of dog training, there's all that like social pressure of, I have to get good at all these training things. And then you, yeah. you're, you kind of think, well, cause you want to be teachable. I have to learn how to do all of these things only to ultimately kind of circle back to a place where you're like, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that mm -hmm. technique or that method, or I don't even really need a method so much as I need a conversation that I can support with the dog. And I need to be able to communicate clearly. And I also need to be able to hear the dog. And then we have to come to terms basically. Yes. Really different way of thinking about it. Yeah. And I have, I've, I don't think I've gone as extreme. I think I have done a little bit of training with them. But I've not done it to the extent that I did with my Roddies, where it was, you're going to go, you know, I want you to go places with me and you're going to go in the car and you're going to do things and we're going to be good and we're going to do all these commands and I'm going to have 30 commands for you the time you're two years old and you're going to be just awesome because my Roddies, they were awesome. And mm -hmm. it wasn't a ton of what I did. They just, it was a relationship that we built, but I didn't see it mm -hmm. as that back then. Um, and of course, my second Roddy was my soulmate. And um, because we did create that kind of relationship where it was this communication back and forth. And um, and then my my next one, I wanted my third one, I wanted to be so good as my second one. I overcomplicated things, did way too much during the development mm -hmm. phases. She was a beautiful human remains detection dog. Very, very good. Not a good social dog with people unless mm -hmm. you're in a circle. And I just, I just tried to overcompensate. And so I was like, okay, I'm backing off. So with Myers, I, I wanted him to be my buddy. I wanted him to be my little guy I could put in a stroller. Yes. I became that person that I laughed at all those times. I was that person. I bought him a backpack. I what is it? Him in a backpack. So he is in, he's a Shizu <laughs> Yorkie pit bull. Oh and my gosh. And 20 pounds. 20 pounds? 20 pounds. <laughs> no, he's a, I call him a shorty bull. Um, 
he does have he does have 3.2 percent rottweiler and i know that doesn't mean much but i'm gonna hold on to it with all that i have um he came out of i thought well he's gonna be good because um, um animal rescue corps here out of nashville rescued him before he was even a week old him and his brother from a hoarding situation and he'd been in foster with them and i thought okay this can't be he can't have that much trauma he's got trauma lots of oh. trauma and how old was he when you got him um i got him he was probably about three or four months mm-hmm. um and now he's about 18 19 months and mm-hmm. it just slowly started coming up but i thought that started out by just doing some simple small exposures but letting him say so it was hey you want to go for a ride if he didn't and he you know if he didn't want to get put in the harness he'd go to his crate i'd let him um it was very different than what i've done in the past where it's no i want you to go with me because i got you to go with me and do Mm -hmm. things Mm -hmm. and i i didn't I didn't want us to have that type of relationship to where I was, it was constant me just doing it and him doing it because I say so, not because he really wanted to. And that was, I think, huge for me sitting back and saying, okay, you may not be the buddy that goes with me everywhere and, and you may not meet that need. So I need to adjust my needs from him. And that was a challenge. And I, and I think there's a part of me that's still kind of, I'm missing a Roddy and I think I'm missing a Roddy because that part that he's not giving, mm-hmm. but it totally, it totally was different. If I was like, okay, what do I really want to focus on with him? And my biggest focus on him was, was, was really, and you talked about not doing any leash walking. I wanted to make sure that he could walk with me on or off leash. So like I use a leash to teach off leash commands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say that probably 90% of the time I have to give him any type of of information. It's all about just those walking commands Mm -hmm. of this way. You know, you're going a little too far that way. We're going in this direction. Just come this way. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has helped him to stay a little more focused on me. So now when we're out and about, he spends a lot of time looking where I am as I'm looking where he is so that we're having kind of this responsibility together. Yeah. And the other thing that I did that I've probably not done as much when, you know, because I mean, my Roddy was 11 when she passed. So it had been a while for a puppy for me. Mm-hmm. I made sure to absolutely comfort him when he needed it. I was of the, the you know, the, the time of don't baby and coddle. You can sue to say, hey, you're good, but be confident, right? Now, if he comes to me and he's like, I need to be held, I'm holding you. Mm-hmm. And that was a big different mindset for me. Mm-hmm. And so when I was, uh, Gray and I recorded a podcast yesterday and we were talking about 4th of July, the amount of dogs that run away, mine runs to me when he's scared. And, mm-hmm. and I felt like that is because I developed that relationship saying, I have great things for you and I will give you this world. You want to go sniff that? Go sniff that. You want to go pick up that dead mole that, you ca- that the cat just brought in? Okay. Can I see what you have? Good boy. Okay. You can have it back. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I'll take it away. Um, and you know, oh, you grabbed my socks, played with a few hacks on that one. Right. My little naughty boy. Oh, Mm -hmm. who's got that sock? You have my sock, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was just a very different, much more pleasant experience with a puppy Mm -hmm. and a constant sit down. No, sit, sit, come right. You know, it's this, this thing that we think we're supposed to do. Right. And and it's like the other day, Brittany said, Myers, leave it. And he just kind of looked at her for a second. I looked at her and I went, I've never taught him leave it. And it hit me. I was like, I've not taught him leave it. He just drops things or he just sniffs them and I good boy and we move on. <laughs> and I've and I think that's what made me realize, wow, wait a minute. Have I done good or did I screw up somewhere? And I know uh-huh. time will tell. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, I mean, so I, I want to speak to a couple of the things you've said, because it really reminds me of a number of things that I've been thinking about and talking about with other colleagues and um, members of our legs community and stuff like <clears throat> um, one is kind of going back to the listeners, just general kind of like, what you didn't train a hundred and something pound dog is going to be 175 pounds. <clears throat> just a reminder to kind of put it into um, context for folks dogs and humans have been successfully working and living together for 10 to 40,000 years. We haven't had dog trainers until like the last, you know, 30, 
Yeah. And like, that wasn't even common until the last like 15, maybe 10, you know? And oh, yeah. so, and yet it worked and every other species on earth survives and is successful and has relationships and communicates and solves problems. And, and they don't have outside godlike forces teaching them commands and giving them cookies for getting the answer right. Like, so I think we have to like step back and think about learning is a natural process that every single organism on the planet is engaging in from the moment that they're born, even before they're born. So cells are learning, genes are learning, everything is learning because that is the mechanism of adaptation on a cellular level to an individual level. So we're not saying teach them nothing. We're saying you don't have to get a box of cookies and a training plan and a mat or a choke chain or a leash or whatever to teach. So it would be the difference between saying like, you know, I'm going to teach my child through experience, communication, mm -hmm. feedback, consistency about say appropriate behavior at the dinner table, but I don't need to do some setups with my toddler about appropriate behavior at the dinner table. We're living life together. Yep. And so when, when we think about it, this is not as weird as we've made it. We've right. just all been conditioned <laughs> into this idea that like, and it's the pet industry. The pet industry yep. is like a 40 year old industry. It's not that old really like where everyone needs a dog and then everyone needs a dog trainer. And then these are the things you teach a dog to do. And like, it, it kind of got away with us, like to where we just kind of kept repeating the antiquated models and the patterns of commands and obedience and like how you do it and what the goals are and whatever. And it just went unchallenged for so long that the only thing people were talking about was different ways of accomplishing the same ends of compliance and obedience in the idea that one had to do this in order for a dog to be well-behaved. Um, and I think that comes from a presumption, pre-modern science understanding and insight of just how incredibly intelligent, sentient, dynamically, you know, capable dogs and every other species are. Now that we know that, I think it's time for us to evolve and kind of be like, okay, let's throw away the antiquated stuff. I'm not, if people want to train and they want to use more traditional like approaches, I don't have any problem with that. I'm just kind of saying it is okay for us to also choose to not do that and to explore a more, frankly, evolutionary approach to relationship where we recognize we're a social species, they're a social species, cooperation and collaboration are mm -hmm. elemental to both of our species survival. So that's the in, that's the foot in the door to why they would even listen to us in the first place. And we can look to nature for the answers about what makes one worth listening to in a social group in nature. Being confident, having intel, being assertive towards conditions, being protective of your social members, knowing what's best for the group and making sure that you're always doing that, resolving conflicts, raising yeah. young, like it's loving leadership. It's, it's basically parenting because exactly. usually the dominant individuals are the ones that are reproducing in almost every social species. So it's basically parenting. Yep. So like, I think um, in the same way, I think we've gotten a little over prescriptive with like working with behavior with children, with some of the ABA gone too far with applied behavior analysis. We're like, we're like, this is our definition of good and normal. And we yes. must condition you to be compliant with our definition of good and normal. Yes. Some parents are following that, but I think most parents would say, I want what's best for my kid. Yes. I need them to be reasonably behaved and not a monster at home or out in the world. And I also want for them to feel functional, well-adapted, fulfilled, right? Like, so it's really taking all of those same things yeah, and seeing them as elemental and saying, how can we integrate that into our approach and working with dogs? And, um, you know, that secure attachment piece for a dependent, whether it's a child or a dog, is this cornerstone kind of hub from which all of these other things happen, right? Because when we are that individual touchstone, like you said, your dog runs to you, yep. not runs away. And we've created that secure attachment. And we are always that one who is demonstrating, hey, I'm the parent in the room. I'm yep. the upper management that's keeping everything copacetic. They want to align themselves with that because so intuitively, evolutionarily, that's in their best interest. Mm -hmm. 
And it's less artificial because what can happen when we're using the kind of more traditional training models is things turn into transaction based relationships where it's like, I'll do it because you're giving me something. So like a show me the money relationship yes, or a um, I'll do it because I'm scared of the consequences if I don't. And I don't want either of those relationships. That doesn't mean that I don't believe in paying for a job well done, but I don't want our relationship to evolve around that. Lord knows I don't want to give my husband or my kids, you know, money every time they give their mom a hug and be like, like, that seems weird because the hug's about other things, I hope. (laughs) Right? Come Um, on, you like me, right? (laughs) Right, right. I mean, we've got all this pressure on us, though. Like you you said a minute ago, and, and my friend Justine and I, again, we're talking about that this morning. When we focus on this, like, training obedience command model we set ourselves and our dogs up for this really awkward this or that Mm -hmm. results of either you do what i trained you to do and i am woo godlike beating my chest look what i can accomplish i made you do a thing which we are all vulnerable to that like ego lure of our power over another being and that needs to be checked that ego needs to be time yes or we're disappointed because they didn't do what we told them and trained them to do. So either we're boosted in our ego yep. or we're deflated and mad. But either way, that's not what their behavior should be about is boosting our ego or crushing our ego. Either way, I don't have a dog for my ego. Right. That's that's not what I want to have a dog for. Um, but I can also own that I have in the past when I was new to training and I felt yeah. that pressure. Yeah, you got to be good. Your dog has to be perfect, right? right? You're a dog trainer. And, and it was, you know, when you said it's been around for 30 years and I'm like, oh my God, I've been in it for 27. That means, (laughs) I didn't know I was, I thought it was around a lot longer than that. I'm feeling a little old for a second. Um, I think that a lot of people do believe that they have to have this. and, And it is because of certain types of, of advertisement that's out there that your dog has to do this, 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 and this to be a good to be a good dog. And then, you know, we started having all these dogs, having dog friendly places. And that put more pressure on people where before they were just at home, they were in the yard, they were getting to be their own little beings. They didn't necessarily even have a fence. Um, you know, so they were good. We didn't have any problems. We didn't have serious dog fights. And then now we have people that are, are, you know, bringing in dogs, there's more dog friendly places. So there's more pressure and not to mention the amount of of people and, and the millennials, and the the newer generations are choosing dogs over getting married early, having kids early. And I think that they feel this pressure to have to have these set standards of obedience to have your dog be good. But, and I, and I try to tell my listeners this on a regular basis, your dog responding to a sit or down doesn't mean they're going to be able to handle this world and handle what you're throwing at them. And, and it doesn't even mean that it, just because they sit doesn't mean they're even comfortable. You right. know, and that was one thing for me learning really to, to watch Myers and say, okay, if he's uncomfortable, I need to recognize before he starts to show these things so I can put him away. Whereas maybe before I'd be like, oh, come over here. You're fine. Come here. We'll just sit here and we'll hang out you know, cause I was going to be the fixer on that. Mm-hmm. When in reality, the fix was saying, I got your back. I see what you need. And I'm going to, I'm going to let you go inside. Um, he doesn't like the smell of smoke. And it started with the fire pit. If we're uh, barbecuing, he can't handle that smoke. And that was something that was brand new. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to just hold him and be like, you're fine, buddy. I got you. Right. But he was so freaked out. I was like, well, what am I thinking? This, he's telling me what he needs. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was saying, all right, you don't need me right here. But the reality is he needed me to make that choice for him and put mm-hmm. him somewhere safe. So I was still there for him mm-hmm. without striking my, you know, ego saying, I can take care of you, right? right. I can make you feel better. I'm a dog person, right? I'm so- a dog trainer. I'm a professional. <laughs> I'm a dog trainer. I am so good, right? <laughs> and it was a little different for me to have to step step back, even though I teach this to people, <laughs> I still have to step back and I can, it is harder to see it when you're right in the middle of it, mm-hmm. right? It is harder to see it. And, um, but I, I do feel like it has made such a better relationship with he and I. 
Mm-hmm. Um, to where there are moments that he shows his little Shizu self where he comes and cuddles and it's so cute and it's just starting to get some cuddle. And then there's the Yorkie where, you know, air is moving through the room and he barks <laughs> nonstop barking. He is sound sensitive. So we're dealing with that. Mm-hmm. You know, and then he has that pit bull that comes out when he wants to get off the cats and he's tearing a toy up. Yeah. Um, but overall, it's like he does look at me and, and he is one of those dogs that follows me where I go and he wants to know what I'm doing. But it's not out of a I'm too scared to be alone situation. And I and I feel like in that moment, you know, have I given him enough individual thinking and processing and learning? And that's me going back to going, have I have I taught it you know, properly? you know, or did I, you know, is he, is he going to be good to go and handle all these different situations? And and again, it's going to be a few more months before I can really see what my pros and cons are of it. But I know that I feel good taking him places and, and he just like, I don't have to do much with him. He mm-hmm. checks in on me. He, he, if I do have to call him to me, it's very quick, very easy. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to interact and play. And I think that that to me has made such a difference than just, oh, look, I have 20 commands for him. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and then when I do take him out, we are dealing with some of his trauma, you know, and people look at you and go, oh, you're a dog trainer. What you're supposed to have a perfect dog. And it's like, who's better to have a dog with trauma? Right. Right. So, and, and it has helped me with my skills um, for sure, because getting right in the middle of it, it's, it's different. And then trying to change your mindset at the same time, mm-hmm. I'm, going, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to make this guy a robot. Right. And I'm not even sure what he wants as a job. Whereas I can see like with Monk, at least he's got like a straightforward, mm-hmm. I'm mostly livestock guardian. At least I know what I want. I don't even know. I don't think Myers knows what he is <laughs> and what he wants. Well, and it's not a lot of that companion breed stuff, right, going on. And and in mm-hmm. that case, too, then, like, a lot of it is just that relationship with us. Like, we've selected for that attention towards us. So their mm-hmm. cup can sometimes be filled just by the relationship. And, right, like, their purpose can, well, and the alarm barking, which is the other mm-hmm. fun job that comes with that. And you're like, great, that's an awesome job. That's not annoying at all. Not <laughs> at all. At least my bodies gave me a warning. He just right. barked, and then I pee a little. Right. right. It's because it's like right in your ear and it's high pitched. He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. That's why I taught him to shut the fuck up. Yeah. I, I, I have one small dog right now. And I, you know, me and the husband joke, like we won't do the small dog thing again because we have such thin skin for the high pitch bark, you know, right. It's like, me too. Yep. Um, but you know, everything you're talking about makes me just think about like this whole concept that we have in our subconscious and society that like dogs are supposed to be blank slates or like putty. We really actually have absorbed that into our cultural consciousness to where we think that not only they can be molded into anything we want with enough skill and the right trainer, but we should because otherwise they'll just be a blob on the floor and not a dog at all. And it's like they don't need our help to to be a dog. They do need our help figuring out how to navigate living in the 21st century in a life of captivity. And that's something people don't think a lot about because we've kind of slowly, gradually changed all of these ways that we keep dogs. But like you said, I mean, when I was a kid, they were loose in Atlanta. So yeah. we didn't, like nobody went to dog training classes because you had behavior problems. You went for, cause it was fun, kind of like a hobby thing or whatever. Right. 4-H club, right, right. 4-H club kind of thing. <laughs> yep. Like, oh, the kids can have a little contest at yep. the end and see which dog learned a cute trick. But like, there wasn't the need for it. And I think it's really important to put that in perspective for listeners that like the incredible epidemic that we have of dog behavior problems is a result of those changed conditions and the increased pressures on them to, um, well, A, they, they aren't able to meet their own needs autonomously because they're always dependent on, on us in the house, in the yard, on a leash, whatever, yep. in a crate. And, um, and so if they aren't meeting those needs, there's a consequence, first of all, to those needs not being met. We frankly aren't able to meet all of those needs because without autonomy, you just can't. 
Um, we continue to breed all these dogs for jobs that we don't have available anymore. And then right. we put them interchangeably in any environment as if the entire evolutionary cornerstone concept of a niche in the habitat are irrelevant with dogs and it's not. So we spent all these thousands of years perfecting all these behavioral distinct experts. Mm -hmm. And now we're like, now we want you to be unemployed and just hang out, <laughs> don't bark, don't chew, don't kill, don't fight, oh, don't protect, right. don't do any of the things we bred you to do, okay? Cause now you have a life of luxury. So just sit back and enjoy it. But like, it literally doesn't make sense to a species to not have purpose. Like, right. There's no free rides in nature. So like the free ride thing doesn't even make sense. It's an exercise in frustration and insanity. Yeah. You know, minus I, the genetic couch potatoes. Right. They, they're fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> I love how you put that though, that we have bred all these skilled workers and now we're like, sorry, you're going to be unemployed. We're going to go ahead and retire you. Yeah. Uh, your job is no longer. <laughs> Wait, don't I? No, you what? don't have to do anything. Like to me, I'm so hyper and like, like driven as a person, yeah. my basic nature, I'd lose my mind. If someone was like, you can retire now and sit on a beach for the rest of your life. I'd be like, I don't think I can do that. No, uh -uh. it sounds no, great for the week. I was just there. And right. then by the end of it, I was like, okay, what are we doing next? What's the next yep. job? What's the next, yep. you know, purpose that we have. And, um, so evolutionarily animals feel like they need to have purpose. And then we bred dogs in some cases to have a neurotic drive to work and perform 14 hour days, things that animals in nature would never do, um, where they don't even know how to turn it off. They don't even know how to stop. And we take those same drugs, those same adrenaline junkies and workaholics, and we put them in condos and tell them to chill out and just look out the window. And like, I think for people to appreciate that all of that is a result of this complex interplay of those legs, that learning, the environment, the genetics and the self, it's not, oh, I just need a dog trainer. And then someone will put it through the paces Yep. and then make him or her obedient to my commands. And then I won't have problems anymore. And I know tons of your listeners have been through <laughs> four obedience classes and their dog is still having yep. serious problems because those things are kind of apples and oranges. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's because um, to this day, I mean, and I do feel like, you know, 2020 set us back. 10, 15 years on dog training. We were really going in a great positive way. And then everybody wanted these quick fixes because they got a bunch of dogs during COVID. And now they're having all these problems. And, oh, if I could just teach them how to do this, 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 and this, they're going to be great. Mm -hmm. No, it, that's that's not the way it that it's not the way it works. And we're really trying hard to, to help people understand that just create that relationship. Figure out what's going to work for you both, welfare for you both. You know, what do you need from the dog? What does the dog need from you? What do you want as a relationship, right? You've got to really, I want you to think about that and not this just, oh, I have to do all this training. And, and you know, one of the things I, I really want listeners to understand is that, and we do have some um, professional trainers that listen to and follow, but if you're hearing from professional dog trainers that we are not, doing the things that you're hearing you should do. Listen, we've been through it, right? We've been through it. We've done it both ways. But, and I have found though that, yes, I do want him to be able to respond to commands when I need a behavior that's pure safety and need, mm -hmm. but it's typically natural behavior that I can already capture through natural living, through natural interaction. And it's just like with, when my, when our niece was living with us and we were raising her, at 14, I didn't sit down and have lessons with her about making choices, right? right? I taught her when she came home from school, you know, get you a snack, decompress, and then choose something to do in the house that, you know, is good for the household. And usually mm -hmm. she'd like unload the dishwasher. And that was my way of helping her to learn choices mm -hmm. and to take some responsibility. And now she just came back six weeks um, from France from an archaeological dig because uh, she's in college now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she spent six weeks over there helping all these other girls that were over there travel and go see things on the weekend because she's a, she's learned how to make those choices and how to um, kind of function in this world by having tour guides in the past, mm -hmm. by having upper management. She was able to travel because my mother and father would take her and teach her how to travel. 
by this relationship. And, and I, and I look at her and go, wow, we didn't screw her up. She's more mature than me. She's really making strides. This is fabulous. But I'm also making sure that she was meeting her needs. And, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, she tried to do things like softball because that's what I wanted her to play. I played sports. I wanted her to be athletic. God, she trips over her own feet. Mm -hmm. And at first I was, and I think this might've been my first lesson is I was disappointed when she didn't want to play anymore. Kind of. Uh, but then I was realized it's not about me. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted out of her. And I think that helped me with Myers when I went, I want him to be my little sidekick, get in the car, my convertible, let's go ride. You know, he hates riding, mm -hmm. he hates being in the car. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, you're not going to play softball. Okay. So let me find out how we can have this relationship through that interaction. And, and I, and I do think that if people can just learn to be a little bit more flexible in their thinking, mm -hmm. a bit more flexible in what that relationship looks like and really dive into it personally mm -hmm. and, and not look at your neighbor's dog or somebody on YouTube with their trained dog, you know, like, like muster dogs. That was just on Netflix. Brittany yeah, and I watched do, it. Yeah. yeah. It was so good. We're going to do an episode on it because there's so many things I want to talk about. Yeah. Um, but I was just like that, th that whole concept of, yeah. of this is what a dog is bred to do. Now you don't have to go do train, 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 but we do have to develop a relationship. <laughs> you do have to, you know, give some of those foundational skills through, but it's just through natural. I, the, that whole show was so awesome to me because it's such a great legsy show because you are yeah. taking those genetic cues, you're putting them in the right environmental locks, you're working with the individual different personalities of all the different yeah. dogs. And I love that the, the trainer on the show said yeah. in the very first episode, I don't really think we're, you know, dog trainers. I think we're situation creators. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love that. Like, yes. Like, so I wrote that down. That's funny. I know. I, I did it on my notes because I'm like, I'm going to say that. <laughs> I know. I was like, I said, she's so neat. And it's, it's not that then we're not teaching or that he's right. not. Like, he talks about how I create situations that will promote certain actions. And then I name those actions. So like you're building a language and you're also creating boundaries. So like if the dog is doing something as they start creating those scenarios that the dog can't do, he will interrupt the behavior and be like, nope, that's not it. And then when the dog is doing it right, it's like, oh my gosh, you nailed it. But everything is so that kind of organic pre-modern dog training like thing that I was talking about, like how humans and dogs have lived together for 10 to 40,000 years, yeah. where you figure out effective, successful communication and collaboration. And it doesn't have to, I guess, be arbitrary. Like that's kind of the point. Like it's not that Monk, for instance, won't sit or lay down when I need him to. It's that it's, I never, ever, and I can't say this about 20 years ago, me, would ask him to sit or lay down for no reason. And we have been taught to do the opposite. Repetition, yep. reps, proofing, put him in tons of arbitrary positions. Shoot, put him on some weird arbitrary piece of furniture out in public at a park or some weird wall or whatever yep. and put him on a sit stay on that. And it looks so impressive because it is so weird that it's somehow <laughs> more intriguing to us. We're like, right. wow, look what they got that dog to do. Like a dog would never do that on their own. You're like, Maybe we should question that part. Like, exactly. why are we trying to get him to do unnatural stuff? Because it makes us want to beat our chest and say, look what I can get a dog to do. Yes. So it, that relationship piece becomes a filter through which we make the decisions about the asks. And the irony is, is that dogs sit and lay down anyway. So yep. you don't actually even have to, you can, but you don't have to go about teaching a sit or a down or a wait with any arbitrary motivators. You can literally put language around all the behaviors they're going to be offering anyway, and then interrupt and foster based on the dialogue of, yeah, that's a great idea. You made, you made a great choice. And, you know, I just love that you did that just like we would with a kid yeah. versus interrupt. Like, you know what? That's not a great choice. Like, that's not going to fly here. We're not going to like maul grandma, you know, right. when she comes in the door <laughs> by jumping on her enthusiastically because granny's going to fall over. So... Yeah. We have a system for that, but life is the trainer. 
That's yep. probably the perfect place to sew this thing up, I think. I don't know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, oh. Well, only because I realized I'm like, I've got five minutes left before uh, uh, webinar I'm supposed to be doing. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I tell you. I, there's so much more I would love to talk about. Um, I would love to get you back and, and maybe we can revisit this in a few months to see if any of this bites us in the ass. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm like, so far, everything, like, this experiment is going beautifully. And then, you know, six months later, Kim was like, I should have done it differently. But oh I don't think God, I'm going to change my mind. You this. No, right. I'm, too, yeah. I'm too many clients and my own dogs in at this point, having right. leaned into this fully and all our students that are having so much success. Yeah. It's pretty yeah, amazing. I think, I think we're on the right track. I think we're on yeah. the right track. Well, I appreciate you spending time with me today. I always just love chatting um, and see where it always takes us. Um, so I love that. Thanks for, for taking that time and coming back from vacation. Um, at least it was at least a little bit of a relaxing conversation for that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and Monk is just amazing. Um, where can where can our listeners go find Monk and where can our listeners go find you? And especially with um, the new legs that you have out for um, dog owners. Yeah. So a couple of different places. If people want to um, stalk Monk, I, I put, you know, about monthly Monk spam on my Facebook page so they can just search Kim Brophy and uh, they can follow there and then they'll get Monk spam updates. They can also just put Monk into the search bar on my page and then they'll see a lot of Monk spam. Um, but uh, that's a lot of fun and there's a lot of good musings and observations and stuff on there that people can, you know, enjoy. Um, and then we have the Family Dog Mediation Education Center website, um, which has the links to uh, our course information and then, of course, enrollment and whatnot. Um, so people are welcome to uh, check that out. And, you know, if they're a professional, please consider joining us in the Full Legs community. It's not only an awesome course, it's an amazing community where we do not tolerate egos. They have to be checked at the door. So that prevents a lot of yucky stuff that's all over social media and other places. So that's awesome. Um, and then if uh, folks are actually just looking for help and kind of want a different take on maybe stuff they're dealing with with their own dogs, we do virtual consultations with people around the world. Um, and they could go to dogdoorbehaviorcenter.com and find out more about that direct to, um, you know, pet families kind of services that we offer. Yeah. And it's, I love it because I have no client that moved to uh, right outside of Asheville and she's like, I'm looking to get a new dog. I'm like, okay, great. But you have to go see Kim Brophy. So she already <laughs> talked to one of your trainers at, the, oh, that's at, awesome. at your facility. So I'm like, that's great. Okay. Um, but yeah, I will link everything as well in the show notes. Um, and if you guys, I, I'm telling you for our dog trainers that do listen, if you've not done the legs course, it will change your life. When I, when I get people, when I get trainers emailing me, asking me what I recommend, that is the very first thing. Um, it really will change your life because if you don't understand what you're teaching and trying to um, develop a relationship with, you're going to struggle. And I think this is the best way to do it. So awesome. thanks for putting all this, all of it together. You've just been amazing. I, I just, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, this, is, this is just so fun. It's like, I, I'm a, I'm a pig and shit, right? Cause we just get to like nerd out together and, you know, it, yep. and this really is an interactive process as we're all kind of taking the industry to the next level. Yeah. And, and I know our dog speak geeks love it cause we're all yeah. just as nerdy. So thank you. Kim. <laughs> I hope the rest of you guys go check all of that out. It's amazing. Appreciate uh, you listening today and I hope you guys have a great week and Kim, I hope you, uh, recharged and are ready to just get working. And I can't wait to see you in December. Awesome. Can't wait to see you too. Right. Thanks. Yeah.